Dr. Piers Robinson is an expert on communication, media and world politics, focusing on conflict and war, and especially the role of propaganda. Dr. Robinson is co-director of the Organisation for Propaganda Studies, convener of the Working Group on Syria, Propaganda and Media, and associated researcher with the Working Group on Propaganda and the 9-11 Global War on Terror. He has served on the boards of several academic journals. Dr. Piers Robinson, thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Did 9-11 and COVID-19 present spectacular opportunities for government to enact policies that would have been impossible otherwise? Short answer to that question is, is yes. And starting with 9-11 as an event, uh, which of course is controversial, the event itself, but 9-11 as an event which enabled the global war on terror, um, it's very accurate today, 20 years on, to understand it as something which enabled policies to be pursued which could not have otherwise been pursued. And just to spend a couple of minutes to make this point very clear, uh, 9-11 led to the global war on terror. It ushered in 20 years of regime change wars. And most of these regime change wars are only tangentially connected with the notion of fighting Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. And so what you had with 9-11, you had this traumatic event for the American population, deeply traumatic in psychological terms, uh, and the shock. And that was then used by uh, the American government in order to pursue wars in, for example, Iraq, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, but also Afghanistan. And also that ultimately led through two conflicts we see in Libya and Syria today. Um, and what has become clear over time with 9-11 and the global war on terror is that the regime change wars um, were essentially conducted exploiting 9-11 as a propaganda event. And this actually became clear fairly early on or in 2006 when General Wesley Clark um, revealed that he'd been informed that America was planning on attacking seven countries in five years. And this was immediately after 9-11. And in more recent years, documents have come to light through the Chilcot Inquiry in the United Kingdom showing that uh, President Bush and Tony Blair were planning regime change wars immediately after 9-11. And one one diplomatic cable that was published by the Chilcot uh, Inquiry referred to um, elements within Washington wanting to use a global war on terror in order to do other things, to clear up other problems in the international system. And that's exactly what we had. We had 9-11, quite aside from the controversies around that event, which continue to this day as to the actors involved and who was responsible. You had the use of it as, as a propaganda mechanism, as it were, to build domestic support and political support for regime change wars, for toppling governments that you wanted to get out of the way in the international system. And I mean, Peter Dale Scott talks of, of deep events, and, and 9-11 in that sense was a, became a deep event which enabled um, also within the US in significant civil liberty restrictions through the Patriot Act, also enabled uh, the use of torture um, by the U.S. as became clear after a long period of time. 
and some whistleblowing. Uh, bulk surveillance of the population was ushered in under uh, the cover of the global war on terror. But primarily it was there as, as an event which was exploited and propagandized, employing the fear of, of, of the alleged threat of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism to start wars in the international system, which weren't really to do um, with that. And the invasion of Iraq was very clear. The American government linked Saddam Hussein with Al-Qaeda, even though there was no substantial link of any kind. And they used that to help put, uh, build support for invading Iraq, at least amongst the American public. So 9-11, certainly. And the parallel here with um, uh, COVID-19 is that you have similar dynamics. You have event, an event, an event which I think can be described in Peter Dale Scott's sort of deep uh, event terms. And this uh, COVID-19 and the fear that it has created amongst populations around the world, very similar dynamic to the fear that we saw in relation to what happened after 9-11. Um, that fear um, has clearly become a powerful mobilizing force and populations are extremely malleable um, when terrified about a virus and that's operating at a global level. And the parallel there is, is clear in terms of what this event could potentially be used for, just as 9-11 was used to usher in a, a, an era of regime change wars. COVID-19 has equal, if not much greater power to usher in significant political and economic changes. Um, and so I, I think, yes, these, these things are they're clearly both events which can be used and abused by political actors in order to pursue agendas. So what are the possible uh, political and uh, maybe economic agendas being pursued? Well, what has become clear, because at the start of COVID-19, and I wrote about this very early on, I mean, I, I, I warned that this could be an event that can be used in the same way that 9-11 was used. Um, but at the beginning, one could be forgiven for thinking well, maybe we have a government reaction, overreaction to the virus, um, and that there are miscalculations being made, and that things such as lockdown were a sort of understandable overreaction to what was going on. Um, and there, there was, you know, I, I had the back of my mind, maybe that is what we were seeing at the beginning of the crisis. But then it started to become very clear um, that there's a large amount of propaganda associated with um, the COVID-19 event, that you had a ramping up of fear levels and documents came out showing that that was intentional, certainly in the UK, but also in Germany. A ramping up of fear levels, an exaggeration of the threat, very similar to what we saw with 9-11 and, and the alleged threat of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. And that was clearly distorting public perceptions. People were becoming, they were complying with lockdown and so on. And that's well established now. I don't think anyone, any reasonable person disputes the fact that governments have been employing propaganda to sort of gain um, uh, gain support or gain compliance with policies such as lockdown. That's pretty clear. Um, but here we are, 18 months on, with the crisis, or the crisis, as it were, continuing, with ever-increasing draconian policies being pursued, um, now we're in, in a phase where lockdowns are being replaced with the threat of man, mandated vaccination of entire populations. Okay. And this is 18 months on. And throughout this whole time, we've seen scientists being censored, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit later in the interview about. 
And where we are now, 18 months in, I mean, the, the, the questions which are becoming very, very obvious that, that this is more than simply a public health crisis, that what we are witnessing and what we are seeing in terms of the government responses and responses from various global actors um, has not really got anything to do with um, protecting the population or making people healthy or or dealing with the virus. And, and this gets to, to, to answer your question, this gets to the what are the economic and political drivers? And, and this is the, the central question which people should really need to start to be engaged with now, that, that there is this focus on the virus and, and the concern over what to do and how to act and so on. But we really need to start to pay attention to underlying political and economic drivers. And these aren't too hard to see. And in some ways, they've been seen from the beginning. We've had the World Economic Forum and the Build Back Better, the Great Reset, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, all of these ideas which have been put out by actors such as the WEF and, and other global organizations, talking about a very different future. We're into a new normal and so on. And, and that clearly represents a political agenda, which has a particular vision of the future, a, a vision which involves us um, perhaps not owning much, a vision which uh, of the future which involves high-tech, um, high-tech economies, but also high-tech societies. Um, and, and that's, you know, the WEF is, is pretty clear and it's pretty out in the open what they're envision, envisioning for the future. And it's also clear that, that COVID-19 is seen as an opportunity to develop this new world or this new vision of the future that people like Klaus Schwab um, talk about in, in his book. But what has become very clear, and, and this is, I, I think, something which people really need to get up to speed with, is, is the economic dimension to this. And this does link into the, what we see coming out of the WEF. But I think that understanding the economic drivers behind this is, is perhaps central to understanding COVID-19 as a propagandized event which is being used in order to usher in major changes. And what has become clear in certainly in, in recent months with a number of experts and, and economists starting to speak out and some people, some of the people that people should probably take the time to look at, Ernst Wolf, uh, Professor Werner of quantitative easing fame, um, Catherine Austin Fitz, John Titus has also spoken about the financial crisis in the markets that was brewing in 2019. Um, and what that crisis, much bigger and much more severe than the one that we saw in 2007, um, what that has created is, is a, cri a crisis in the financial system. And the arguments which these economists and experts are developing or putting out there into the public domain um, are, for example, Wolf argues about uh, in 2019, the markets and central banks were confronted with hyperinflation versus a collapse of the banking system. Um, and that they then moved to essentially move towards trying to develop a new financial system, put in place a new financial system, whilst also, as it were, sort of plundering the remnants of the old economy. That's the kind of argument that, that was coming from, that is coming from Wolf. Um, Fabio Vigi, a, a kind of professor, has spoken about the drive, the need to actually shut down the economy in order to 
help with the restructuring of the financial system, which was, was going into a new crash in 2019, 2020. And whilst the arguments that they're putting forward are fairly complex economics arguments and so on, it is fairly clear they're all saying pretty much the same thing now, that what we've had is, is, is a drive now to deal with a financial crisis. COVID-19 has been a mechanism, a propagandized event, which is enabling them to start to engage in this restructuring out of the view of, of, of public attention. And where one theory about where this is driving is, for example, in relation to uh, vaccine mandates, okay, and the way that has been linked to digital ID. And one argument being put forward, or an argument which is being put forward by quite a few of the economists, is that the vaccine mandate is being linked to digital ID, and that's a stepping stone through to digital currency, and then to a digital currency linked to the central banks. And that's it's starting to appear that that is one direction that the economic and political forces that we're talking about are driving towards. Now, people might not understand exactly what that means, but potentially what it means, movement to a digital currency linked to central banks, it allows a huge centralization of power, okay, to the central banks and to other powerful political and economic entities in, in the international system. So you have this tremendous concentration of power. You have tremendous control, which a digital currency and a digital ID potentially gives over to governments, but a huge control over what people spend, how they spend it. And one of the, as it were, the, the concerns, which I think is, is very real at this point in time, is that an end point of, of that is also a social credit style system that they're implementing in China. And that allows governments to punish people, to modify their behavior and to prevent dissent, for example. So in, in terms of trying to understand what's going on, this, if this is the road we're going down, if, if, if mandated vaccinations, and this sort of explains the drive to get everybody vaccinated, if this moves to digital ID and all the information, personal information potentially being accessed by the government leading to a digital currency, the, the level of control being handed up to government is absolutely huge. It's profoundly undemocratic. And this is exactly why some of the economists and some commentators are talking about this collapse into authoritarianism, totalitarianism, or tyranny. This would be a profound um, loss of democracy for, for, for Western states, Western democracies, if this occurs. And this certainly seems to be where we're going. What we seem to have is a financial crisis. We have people with a, a particular political vision of the future, go look at the World Economic Forum, and that COVID-19 as a health crisis, which is focusing everybody's attention, is essentially a, a, a misdirection, a distraction from this substantial, deep-level political and economic restructuring that WEF, central banks, and, and so on, and big tech are trying to usher through, completely undemocratic, leading potentially to, as I said, a, a complete loss of democracy, and nobody's talking about it um, in the mainstream, as it were, but even within people who are questioning what's going on, there is a, a lack of awareness of that. But that that is that is what seems to be 
where we are heading at this point in time. And so to finish this long point, COVID-19 as a health crisis, this is something which is being propagandized and exaggerated and is distracting attention from changes which are absolutely profound and fundamental. And we really need to start to get to grips with that, to understand those changes, and also to start to resist what is going on before we go any further down this road to towards an authoritarian stroke totalitarian society. Hard to resist, um, uh, just speaking from experience in Australia, uh, bring up two things. Um, a girl called Monica Smith, she um, wanted, to start a, wanted to start up a fledgling political party. Anyway, long story short, the police arrested her, said she was uh, inciting uh, protest or unrest or whatever they want to throw at her. Uh, but you can be released on bail if you were to give up um, the political party, close it down, uh, don't contact your members ever again and stop criticising the government on lockdowns. And just today, uh, an economist in Sydney, um, he was out doing business in Sydney. He's vocal against the government, of course, but um, two police uh, persons rolled up at his house um, asked his wife where he was because he is a person of interest and they wanted to make sure he wasn't going to be involved in any protest, uh, which he wasn't because he was in town doing business. And um, so the fear part, and the third thing is, which I'm just going to throw in now, uh, there's tomorrow, so this is when this airs, it's been, but tomorrow there's a, um, a protest, or there was a, they said a protest planned, so they... Victorian government stopped all public transport. They've made a red zone in the middle of the city. Anybody who goes into that red zone uh, will be fined $5,000 plus and jailed. And so the, the scale of this is just, uh, it's almost on steroid. But what about the scale or breadth of the propaganda operations? Um, are they both comparable? Well, compared to 9-11, I mean, 9-11 was uh, an event exploited to pursue uh, a series of regime change wars primarily. And and I think the propaganda associated with it was, uh, as it were, at that level. With COVID-19, this is a, a fully global propaganda operation. And so the scale is much, much greater. It's global. There are actors involved in this which are operating at the global level, the WEF, the World Health Organization. And these are the kind of the globalist forces pushing the agenda. So it's much, much bigger. And it's much more widespread. And as you've just been describing with those examples, that um, it's not just proper, they're not just having to send out messages, uh, you know, uh, about sort of ramping up fear levels on COVID-19 and so on. It's, it's not just about that. There's also a profoundly coercive dimension now to, uh, developing, which just shows quite how far reaching the, the, the drive to mobilize and to order conduct um, with, in relation to COVID-19. Um, and it's no exaggeration to say this is, you know, arguably the, the biggest, as it were, propaganda event that we've had, had in human history in terms of its scale. And in terms of its intensity, this, this shift towards coercion and banning protest, threatening scientists and so on. Um, so if 
you know, 9-11 was big and it was important and it ushered in 20 years of war, which kills, killed millions of people or injured millions of people over 20 years. That's pretty big as things goes, as things go. COVID-19 is, is, is 9-11 on steroids, as it were. Um, and we're seeing it play and we're seeing the consequences of it play out every single day in terms of what you've just been describing, but also in terms of what you see in the mainstream media and this drive that we have at the moment to, to move to the extraordinary situation in which we are, we're injecting the entire population, um, with the, this material, um, with the vaccine, which is, um, e even, you know, Many, many scientists, quite, quite, you know, people such as Robert Malone and, but many other scientists have made clear time and time again that it makes no sense to vaccinate the entire population. And so, but that's what they're driving towards. And of course, that's why bringing in the economic dimension helps us to understand why that might be happening. Because it's not really because it's necessary in terms of dealing with a virus and it might actually you know, have negative consequences in terms of managing uh, COVID-19. It's really about getting to a point where they can get people digital ID, vaccine mandate, digital ID, and so on. That's what's really driving this. Um, but to go back to your point, yes, I mean, it, it's huge and it's, and it's extensive. And it's something that we've never seen before. We've never seen things on this scale. Um, and as a scholar of propaganda, even if we're just looking at the propaganda around the, the, the science side of this, um, I mean, so running out of, I ran out of things to look at a long time ago. So there's so much material coming in that, um, it's, it's difficult to know what to focus on. And it's also interesting, the, uh, the, the general public, I mean, the newspapers or the, uh, the media arm of big pharma and government, uh, doing a fabulous job. Um, I was talking to a, a friend last night and um, we were talking about Ivermectin and um, she first of all thought it was a Russian guy. I said, no, Ivor, not Ivan. Anyway, she uh, said, uh, but it's a horse wormer. I said, well, not, not actually, not really. It's what they want you to believe. She said, well, can you use it for people? I said, of course you can. So she didn't know, and she, you know, she, she's no, no silly person. So, you know, she just believed what the newspapers, what the media said, yada, yada, yada. So the, the actual population or the, our fellow citizens, there's a great number of those who believe that vaccines are the way out and that uh, anything the government does is just fabulous. They wouldn't lie to us. The media is telling us the truth and quite the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the propaganda is, is off the charts in that respect. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and you see it in, in, in the mainstream media. And of course, of, of course, there is a lot of pushback and we'll come to that perhaps a bit later in the interview. But, but yes, it, it's, it's very, I mean, it, it's blunt. The propaganda is blunt. Um, and, and it's, it's very easy to see when you understand what's going on. Um, and it is extreme. Um, as, as I say, I mean, I, I have people pass me so many examples of material in the mainstream media, which is clearly um, propaganda, which is extremely biased, um, and which is all part of pushing and shoring up the agenda in relation mm. to COVID-19. You know, as, as I said before, I, it, it's not, I don't think it's controversial, and it's, it's, 
readily easy, it's easy to readily document the amount of propaganda that the mainstream media have been pushing out in relation to this. And plenty of mainstream commentators use that terminology now, talking about um, the mainstream media. People such as Peter Hitchens, you know, refers regularly to the propaganda. He's the Daily uh, Sunday, Mail and Sunday columnist, refers regularly to the propaganda coming out. Laura Dodsworth, of course, wrote State of Fear, which is an excellent account, uh, an accessible account of uh, these psychological dimensions to the British government propaganda campaign. You know, it's th- these things are, are, are well established and well documented uh, at this point in time. Mm. Look, the COVID-19 operations involved state and federal levels of government, uh, critical private sector support from big tech, big pharma, corporate healthcare, and so on. Were there as many actors involved in the war on terror? Um, well, as, 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 as I think I really answered in, in, in the earlier question, it, it's much wider with COVID-19. I mean, the global war on terrorists was, you know, primarily rooted around, I think, a foreign policy agenda. You can see, mm. you can trace it back to the neocons. And it was very much, you know, NATO, Western governments, the US, which were driving a lot of the narrative. Of course, I, I, I think if I recall correctly, NATO authorized the, the military operation in relation to Afghanistan under the, the NATO charter of, of defending the US. Um, and, you know, it, a lot of the propaganda, I think, was linked into, you know, the foreign policy establishments um, pushing the global war on terror um, and then using that to try and get their wars underway. Um, and actually, you know, in some ways, it wasn't entirely successful in the sense that, say, with the Iraq invasion in 2003, I mean, the U.S. administration kept on making the link between Saddam and al-Qaeda, um, but not many other countries were buying that. Britain didn't buy it. For example, I MI6 said to the British government, well, we're not going to go down the um, al-Qaeda um, Saddam Hussein line because there's no evidence for that. We'll stick with the um, weapons of mass destruction, which was a lie as well, mm. um, in order of selling this to the public. Um, and, you know, the UN, of course, they didn't get the UN vote to attack Iraq in 2003, and they went ahead anyway, obviously. Um, and so, you know, the propaganda was, was uh, those levels and, and, and not particularly, um, you know, not necessarily um, as, as successful as they would have wanted it to have been. With COVID-19, we're looking at a much wider array of actors, as, as you suggest in that question. I mean, you know, we need to look at the World Economic Forum. We need to look at the World Health Organization. Um, we need to look at big pharma, obviously, and also big tech and look at all of these entities as being, having played and continuing to play a key role in this helping usher through these political and economic agendas that I was talking about earlier. Um, and, you know, that, that again puts this on a, on a, on a much higher, larger scale than 9-11. Um, but those, you know, those are, if, if we want to start getting to understand what's going on, these are the actors to be looking at. I mean, many people have been pointing out conflicts of interest in relation to big pharma um, and, for example, you know, federal agencies or government agencies. Um, again, so much information coming on in on that that you there's so many examples that you lose track of it. And it 
mm. terms of trying to keep a list of it all. Um, but these these are big players, and they're clearly and they're bringing in the United Nations as well. In, in, in a sense, the UN is becoming part of this. Um, I've noticed. I mean, it's really worth looking at the work of Corey Morningstar because she's very good at documenting the kind of NGO complex, but also these global actors and the way in which they employ propaganda and messaging or public relations, as they call it. They don't call it propaganda, they call it public relations. Um, but th those are, are clearly major elements in this and perhaps even bigger, more important elements in what's coming out of individual governments and states. And... Of course, that does sort of point towards this broader argument that some people are making that, that governments don't appear to be particular, particularly sovereign in relation to COVID-19. They seem to be you know, following agendas which are coming down from a global level, from these global actors and so mm. on. Um, and, you know, that, that you know, gives you a, a pretty good indicator of, of, the, of the scale of this. This is bigger and wider and deeper um, than 9-11. Than what about the targets of these uh, propaganda operations? Yeah, it's, it's, this is a really interesting, uh, I think, question for you to put in, in, in the sense that it's been very clear from the start, and I mentioned this earlier in the interview, that, that there was a lot of propaganda associated with, with um, COVID-19. And, and I sort of said, well, there was a time when, is, is there an overreaction to a virus here? Why are they locking everything down? It's kind of, why on earth are such extreme policies being pursued? Okay. Um, and one of the propaganda elements which became clear and which actually made me start to question, wait a minute, is there something else going on here? There seems to be a, an agenda underlying this. And it was a way in which scientists were being targeted um, in relation to COVID-19. And so scientists who were raising perfectly reasonable questions about the response, whether it be lockdown or now more recently the question of vaccination, those scientists were very quickly being smeared and subjected to smear campaigns and being censored. And I think with, with COVID-19, if, if, if what we have here is an event which is being used to distract from underlying political and economic agendas, and if this kind of drive to creating this um, moral imperative demand for vaccine mandates and so on, all based upon a particular reading of how to deal with COVID-19, if, if that's what we have going on here, and I think that very much looks like that's the picture that's emerging, I think, at this point in time, then, of course, it would have always been extremely important to close down scientists who are saying things like, well, lockdown doesn't make sense or mass vaccination doesn't make sense. OK, you need to try and suppress that so that people don't so that you can you know, carry through your project lockdowns close down the economy to sort out the financial system, then vaccine passports to get, get you on the road to digital ID and, and to uh, digital currency. You, you've got to maintain the propaganda around COVID-19 and, and, and the idea that these policies actually make sense in scientific terms. And of course, what they've had is a very large number of scientists, very eminent ones questioning that. And they just get either censored, thrown off YouTube and so on. And we've seen real concrete examples of that. And also smearing of scientists, attempting to discredit them. And so I think Robert Malone, the uh, inventor of part of the mRNA technology, has been very clear publicly that mass vaccination doesn't make sense, that one should be careful with the vaccines and that overuse might make the situation worse. 
He's, he was recently subjecting the Atlantic, wrote a, just a, a, a crude hit piece on him. Um, so I think in, in terms of, you know, who are the targets of the propaganda? Obviously, people in general and the global population is, is a target. But I think a particular feature of COVID-19 has been this drive. And this and I've explained why they had to do this, to actually close down the scientists who are offering reasonable um solutions or or actually challenging fundamentally um, what what's going on you had to shut them down um and i think a lot of energy seems to have gone into that into yeah smear campaigns and censorship and you know from personal experience of somebody you know working on on syria and having been subjected to smear campaigns and being subjected to censorship um and so on. What I ex- have experienced over the last few years in relation to, to Syria, but also talk about 9-11, but mainly about Syria, I've seen exactly the same things going on, except now it's happening to these epidemiologists and top scientists and so on. Um, and, and it was very clear to me, well, okay, we've got the same mechanisms at work. This is part of the propaganda. Um, stop people talking about this. Close down the scientists or the experts who are raising questions and do that um in in the crudest you know in whatever way it works and smearing and discrediting is and is 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 a kind of a key tool of of um propaganda operations and just as another example sunetra gupta uh, oxford epidemiologist a very eminent i mean you know and her line has always been that sort of well lockdowns don't work they do more harm than good and vaccination for for high risk population but not the rest and so on rely reliance upon natural immunity she was being smeared as a conspiracy theorist um i think in in late two, 2020 and uh, you know, she doesn't go anywhere near questions about the economic and uh, political drivers underlying covid-19 um, and it's just extraordinary. It's extraordinarily crude, but, but I think that's, that's a, a big story of COVID-19 is the, the active suppression of scientists. And there's lots of them. There's Bakhti in Germany, um, Martin Kulldorff, um, in, in, in the US and many others. Many scientists and experts see, in, you see them in organizations such as Pandata and also Heart in the UK, large gatherings or groupings of experts, professionals, and scientists who are saying, look, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. They're all subject to smear campaigns as well. Mm. Shut them up, discredit mm. them, um, stop them from talking. Um, and, and I think that's, that's been a, a key. You know, uh, that's something which has had to have been done, I think, in order to get us to where we are today, where everyone's sort of facing further lockdowns and mass vaccination and um and repeated vaccination um and so on um we've only got to this point by really um pummeling down um scientific debate and pummeling down those scientists who, who are offering as far as i'm concerned perfectly reasonable analyses of what's going on but which don't support the um draconian measures that we're seeing implemented mm. can the uh, propaganda operations be judged a success or is it too early for COVID-19? I think um, 9-11 propaganda, 9-11 as a propaganda event was successful in the sense that it, it got the war regime change wars rolling um, that they wanted. COVID-19 is different, I think. COVID-19 is created 
widespread dissent and resistance um, across certainly Western democracies, but elsewhere in the world as well. And we see a very large number of the population, a very large number of people who are willing to go out onto the streets. They understand something's wrong. They don't agree with the response to COVID-19. They don't necessarily fully grasp that there's this political and economic component driving all of this. And it's essential that I think people start to understand that more fully, uh, which is purposes of what I was talking about earlier in the interview. Um, but I think um, this level of resistance and it's even creeping through into the mainstream media, right? I mean, you know, you have oppositional media on this issue in the UK um, and also in Germany now. Some of the mainstream media are starting to ask difficult questions. And so it certainly hasn't been successful completely in the sense of um, bringing the population on board to basically either agree with or simply to allow these policies to be enacted in a way that with you know, the global war on terror and 9-11, I think that you know, the wars really pretty much were able to un unfold without much resistance, some to Iraq, but not really the broader global war on terror, regime change conflicts. And so no, I don't think it is fully successful. And the resistance we see is an example of that, but also how extreme the authorities are becoming in terms of um, of sanctioning people who don't take a vaccine, for example. I've just seen news coming out of Italy that Anyone going to work is going to have to have a vaccine passport and so on. The, the authorities are having to become increasingly coercive, and that shows that, that people, that they're aware that a lot of people are resisting what is going on. Um, I mean, you know, as, as a ballpark figure, I'd estimate that 20% of populations across the West don't agree with the COVID-19 response and are, and are willing to go out in the streets and resist um, what's going on. 20% probably believe as it were, the narrative. And there's probably about 60% of the population who who aren't happy with all the policies being pursued, but are thinking that it's going to come to an end soon, that the governments will come to their senses and such extreme measures won't be pursued anymore. Um, and if, if, if those figures are accurate, and that's, that's a kind of guesstimate, um, then it's very clear that there is no certain outcome of this. It is not clear that we will... The, the forces, the powers that be will be able to push us down the direction of um, digital ID, digital currency, and then social credit. The, the resistance to that will be sufficient to derail that. Um, however, it's on a knife edge, I would suggest. Um, and I think this is why we're at such what can only be described as, 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 as a pivotal key moment in, in history, in global history, and but in particular for Western or, or for democracies in the international system, is that you know, there is clearly a drive to push us towards what some people are describing as a, as a neo-feudalist form, uh, a neo-feudalist system, a, a, a neo-feudalist capitalism, or some kind of system where there's really a profound concentration of power and loss of democracy. The, the, the forces are clearly pushing in that direction. And you had the WEF and, 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 and so on. We have the great reset ideology surrounding that. Um, and that's pushing. And you have people pushing back at unprecedented levels in terms of the numbers of people who are willing to go out on the streets. 
the numbers of organizations forming, political parties are forming in the UK and, and, and Germany, new political parties have formed in order to push back against this. Um, and I think we're in the middle of this. We're in the middle of a fight. So it's not clear who is has won. I wouldn't even say it's necessarily clear who exactly is winning. We're in the middle of a struggle, of a real political struggle um, at this point in time. And we're going to have to see. Much will depend upon how people much people resist and organize. Much will depend on people, I think, becoming more fully aware that what we have here is not a simple response to a health issue. Um, we have an economic and political agendas, and that's why it's so important that I encourage people to go and look at the work of um, Ernst Wolf, um, Fabio Vigi, and, and the other economists, uh, Professor Werner, and so on, but also look at the work of people such as Corey Morningstar, Whitney Webb, because that really helps you to understand the political and economic agenda. And I think at this point, if people can get out of the kind of the focus uh, on COVID-19, understand what's going on is not really to do with a virus and it's more to do with these political economic agendas, that will really focus the minds of that 60% of the population who are hoping this is all going to come to an end. If I just have another jab, it will all come to an end and everything will open up again. It might focus their minds and make them realize that actually um, we've got a, a much bigger fight here against essentially a very profoundly authoritarian, some argue even totalitarian drive that we're seeing across Western democracies. And so I think if awareness can increase on that, I, I think um, I think it will become much, much tougher for the entities who are pushing these agendas and pushing their particular vision of the future, um, where we all have digital IDs and digital currency and, and have our purchases and movements controlled and so on, it will make it much more difficult for those entities to achieve what they're trying to achieve. Um, so, but that's as, about as much as, as, as we can say for sure um, about where we are at the moment. But I would on, I only say that, um, you know, there is a convergence of evidence now that what we have here is is not just a response to a health crisis. We have a political and economic agenda and this is you know a propagandized event people's fear levels a very malleable public a distracted public uh whilst absolutely huge massive profound anti-democratic changes are being pushed and rolled out um without any without any meaningful attention from large sections of the population these are critical times people need to wake up get informed and and then to act Certainly. You're right about the distraction. Um, uh, when I've, I just shake my head when I hear, say, uh, in New South Wales, for example, the Premier will say, we'll give you some of your freedoms back uh, if we hit a certain number, some of your freedoms. I never thought I would ever hear that in my lifetime. I mean, it's, I mean, We'd say the cheek of them, how, how dare they say they'll give me some of my freedoms back? And uh, what gives them the right to, to say that to me or anybody else? It's not their right or their decision what freedoms I have back. And um, I asked you this before and I want to ask you again. Is it a train coming towards us? Uh, is it getting closer or is it the light at the end of the tunnel? And part two to that one. 
I want to add another part this time because there was two questions. Um, uh, worse before it gets better? Well, <clears throat> we've got a train coming towards us, mm-hmm. I suspect. Um, but it's not. it could get derailed before it hits us. <laughs> Sort of, like, sort of a maneuver your metaphor a, a little bit there. Um, you know, it's yeah, it there it, it is everything to play for. I think for the reasons I set out before, that this is for, for for anybody who's thinking, has the world gone mad? Is this hopeless? There's nothing we can do. I might as well just get the jab and keep my head down. Look, we've I've never seen so many people waking up to propaganda, waking up to. Um, mainstream media bias. I've never seen so many different people and different categories of people getting mobilized to go out on the streets. There's clearly the potential to derail this um, oncoming train. Um, and and so there is a reason to look positively towards the future. Will it get worse before it gets better? Um, it, at the moment, I think... If the analysis provided by the economists I was talking about earlier is accurate and it does look accurate, they're doing everything in their power to move us towards digital currency, centralization, neo-feudalism, capitalism, or whatever label you want to attach to it. And they're not going to give up on that. Um, the question is, how coercive can they get? And what you have described in Australia is terrifying. Um, what we're seeing in some European countries is is is, is extremely worrying in, in the U.S. and Canada, of course, as well. In terms of this this drive to you know now moving to let's jab chill, all children. I've seen sort of trials for two year olds. Let's try the vaccine on two year olds. Uh, crazy from from the point of view of many epidemiologists and, and doctors out there who are being censored, etc. I think it might get worse. I think, you know, what can they do next? They can get more, they can get soldiers out in the streets. Well, they've done that in Australia. They can do that more widely. They can punish people, threaten jobs, remove jobs, fine, etc., to and, and to try and push, cajole people. But that will always create more resistance. Um, and I think, I think it probably is going to get tougher in the coming months. But I also think that as it gets tougher, as it were for us, the 20%, or maybe it's bigger than that, who, who don't like what's going on, I think as they get tougher, we'll, people will become stronger and more resistant. Um, I do have faith in people in, in that sense. Um, but it, but I, I think it, 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 we could be in for a tough period of time. But I think that we can be, you know, the resistant people resisting can be successful in relation to this. Um, but it could it could get worse. It could get nastier. Um, I think people who are trying to mobilize to resist must remain at all times, obviously peaceful and and dignified and and, and employ strategies. But but enough people acting, enough people joining parties, joining organizations, going out in the streets and protesting civil disobedience, for example. Look at the great work of C.J. Hopkins, who's been writing about the the new normal for a year now and talking about looking at the tools of the black civil rights movement in the U.S. and so on, that those kind of sort of uh, grassroots resistance and civil disobedience, all of those things can can work. 
um, and the authorities will get nastier. But I think at some point, you know, things are so extreme now. Um, you wonder at what point do many people in the police force and the military start to think to themselves, I, this is not what I signed up for. This is not the kind of world that I want my children to live in. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that, we, and there's been some examples of that, right? There's been some sort of, you know, footage of police officers joining protesters or whatever, or, or signaling support. Um, you know, they, 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 they'll get nastier, but, you know, I, I, I think that will only make people resisting stronger. Um, but I, you know, it could, I think it, I think it's going to be tough. Um, in the coming months, and we'll have to see what happens. Um, but yeah, that, that is about as much as, as I, you know, we, we can't predict exactly what's gonna, gonna happen, and no, nobody can. Um, but I, I think there's a limit to how far authorities and the people who are pushing this agenda can push things when you have so many people questioning so many scientists right i mean you know robert malone was on jimmy Dore the, the other day get, calmly talking through issues in relation to the vaccine and here you have an inventor of mrna technology on jimmy Dore, so the major voice in, in the american progressive left um clearly completely driving a horton cast through the, the the official narrative on mass vaccination i i i i, I you know they they can't keep it up forever they've kept it up for a long time um, but there's no sign of people, people who've started to have woken up to this and have started to resist this. And the more people who realize that there's something else going on in terms of political and economic agendas, those people aren't going to suddenly stop overnight. Yeah. And if you've got 20%, if it's the case, you've got 20% of the population across, you know, Western democracies, you know, resisting as it were, um, that's a very large number of people. And, and it'll be very difficult for them to realize their goals, I think, if, if, if that number stays the same or increases, um, even if the authorities get really nasty um, and so on. Uh, they are um, getting nasty, but even nastier than they are. Um, there's only so far they can go before I think the system starts to just fall apart completely. Don't know yet. Um, jury's out for me, um, but I do know that um, I'll be waiting on the beach for you, Piers, in your yacht to come pick me up, take me away from Australia, please. Uh, well, it's, it's not a yacht, so I'll need to get a bigger boat, as, <laughs> as was said in Jaws. I'm disappointed. But I'll, I'll, come. It was I'll, a I'll big get a bigger yacht. boat and I'll come and rescue you. <laughs> but we can share a shardy or chardonnay together or maybe a good pinot. Uh, great chatting. Uh, love to do this more often. Plenty of things to talk about. Um, I'm don't know if it's a train yet. Uh, I like the derailed bit, but I think, first of all, we need, in Australia, for example, you need the population to actually become a little more vocal. And that's really scary. In fairness to them, that's really scary because the, uh, the, the uh, police here, you know, they're doing their job really well on behalf of the politicians. And, um, and none of us want to get a $5,000 fine or thrown in jail or whatever the case is, but as you said, it does come down to a point we actually have to probably stand up and get some uh, concrete in our backbone. Dr. Piers Robinson, thank you very much. Thank you.